0: This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Good evening, everyone. I'm Mark Friedberg, director of RAND's Boston office, and it's my honor to welcome you here tonight. I know you're looking forward to a discussion about truth decay as much as I am, but before we begin, I'd like to tell you a bit about RAND and about the Boston office. For those of you who are new to RAND, a little history. RAND is celebrating its 70th anniversary this month actually, next Monday is the exact date as a nonprofit, nonpartisan research institution. The name RAND comes from a contraction of the term research and development, and since our founding, RAND has been committed to strengthening public policy and decision making through research and analysis. RAND started with just one client, the U.S. Air Force. And over the past seven decades, we've generated ideas and solutions for thousands of clients, including government agencies, foundations, colleges and universities, and private sector firms. As a nonpartisan organization, RAND has been widely respected for operating independent of political and commercial pressures. Quality and objectivity are our two core values. Our research has expanded beyond its original emphasis on national security challenges to cover the issues that matter most, such as energy, education, justice, international affairs, the environment, and health care. It was RAND's commitment to expand and strengthen its portfolio of health related work that led to the opening of the Boston office in 2009. This opening also allowed us to pursue collaborative opportunities with scientists affiliated with universities. Private research groups, and government in eastern Massachusetts. I'm pleased to report that the effort went so well that RAND decided to double our capacity in Boston last year. And we're looking forward to expanding our work here into all of RAND's research areas beyond health. Philanthropy has become a growing factor in RAND's ability to use research and analysis to address some of the world's biggest challenges. The project we will hear about tonight, Truth Decay, is a RAND venture. Rand Venture is our vehicle for investing in policy solutions to critical problems that are crucial to current policy debates, but that reach beyond the boundaries of traditional client funding. And now, truth decay. Rand's chief executive officer and president, Michael Rich, had become concerned about a threat he saw increasing over recent years, the diminishing role of facts and analysis in American life. He called this phenomenon truth decay and tapped RAND political scientist Jennifer Kavanaugh to join him in a major research agenda to define the characteristics of truth decay, determine what causes it, and to help find solutions. I'm very pleased that Dr. Kavanaugh is joining our distinguished panel tonight to discuss the connection between truth decay and the media. Our moderator is Laura Hazard-Owen, deputy editor of the Nieman Journalism Lab at the Nieman Foundation for Journalism and Harvard University. David Lazar is a professor of political science and computer and information science at Northeastern University. And Claire Wardle is the executive director of First Draft and a research fellow at the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School. Laura, take it away.
1: Hi, guys. Thanks so much for coming. So my first question is for Jennifer. um, And I'm wondering if you can just give us the highlights of the recent report on Truth Decay. (laughs)
2: So, as Mark said, we use the term truth decay to refer to the diminishing role that facts and data are playing in our political and civil discourse and the policymaking process. And we defined truth decay as comprising four specific trends. First, an increasing disagreement about basic facts. Second, a blurring of the line between fact and opinion. Third, an increasing relative volume of opinion compared to facts. And finally, declining trust in previously trusted sources of factual information like the government and the media. So with that as our definition, we defined four causes or drivers, things that we think are contributing to this problem. The first isn't something new cognitive processing. There have always been characteristics of the way that we process information that makes us more likely to seek out information that confirms what we already believe, to more heavily weight our personal experience over facts and data that don't agree with that experience, and to rely on our friends and family as a a key source of information. The second driver is the one that we're going to focus on tonight, and that's changes in the information system. And that includes everything from the rise of social media, to changes in the way the economics of the media market work, that increasing competition that drives a shift towards commentary-based news rather than fact-based news. It includes filters and algorithms and the role that they play in uh, skewing or uh, tailoring the information that we end up seeing to things that we're already interested in or that we already believe. The third driver are competing demands on the education system that that challenge the ability of the education system to provide students with the skills that they need to distinguish good information from bad information, to form complex opinions synthesizing across many different sources. And finally, political polarization, and the extent to which political polarization is now reinforced by social, demographic, and other types of polarization that end up creating a very fragmented society in which disinformation and alternative and competing narratives really thrive. When we thought about consequences, we really focused on the way that truth decay affects our democratic processes. When we don't have a common set of agreed upon facts, a number of things happen. First, we see an erosion in civil discourse, an inability to have meaningful discussions and debates across identity group lines. Second, we see political paralysis and stalemate. When our policymakers don't start from a common point in a political debate, it's really hard to have a serious discussion about policy options to weigh values and choices and to come to compromise. Third, we see a decline in civic engagement, which, of course, is the foundation of democracy. If people aren't participating, it really ceases to be a democracy. And finally, uncertainty. Uncertainty in national policy. In uncertainty in, for individuals making decisions for businesses and uncertainty for our allies and adversaries who, don't, um, who can't trust that what, when the U.S. makes a statement of intention that that uh, intention is actually um, going to be carried forward. The the driver that we're focusing on tonight, changes in the information system, I think is actually one of the most important. We did some historical analysis to compare over time to see whether we've seen anything like this before. We found several periods that were similar. And in each of these periods, you do see a change in the way information is disseminated and consumed that appears to trigger some of these these trends that, that we include in our definition of truth decay. Um, This would include things like the shift to mass-produced newspapers in the 1880s and 1890s, the rise of radio in the 1930s, the emergence of television as a primary source of information. And although we don't have good metrics to measure the the scale and scope of these different changes, the scale and scope of the changes that have occurred with the rise of social media and the internet in terms of the access to information, the volume, and the speed, really seems to surpass what we've seen in previous periods. And that may be why it seems so much worse and so much more troubling and worrisome now. David, um,
1: what empirical research do we have about this problem? What do we know? And what don't we know?
3: Well, Jennifer, uh, Covered a lot of this territory. Um, I think uh, while Jennifer emphasized the things uh, we know, I'll emphasize maybe the things we don't know, which is an awful lot. Um, we we really don't have great estimates on the prevalence of you know the various syndrome of uh, syndromes of misinformation, fake news, disinformation, and so on. We know it exists, but. Um, how much is there? Some of the point estimates that have been produced, uh, say uh, there was a paper out last year by uh, an econ- a, co- a couple of economists, Gensicow and, and Alcott, that, uh, you know, suggested a, a somewhat modest but not zero, uh, you know, exposure level to misinformation. There was, um, uh, there's a paper recently out by Brendan Nyhan, Andy Guess and um, and i and and, and, uh, and jason um Refler, uh, thank you <laughs> sorry thank you the names come a little slower now than they used to so um, that that also suggested that you know maybe on the order of let's say a 1% of news related content was was fake news, but that—that's actually a very conservative estimate in the sense that it's—it um, first of all had a very narrow definition of what was in that category, uh, but also uh, excluded a lot of other things like that people might scan past in their um, social media. Um, It's a little unclear, um, you know, just, uh, and and some of that work also suggested that Facebook might be a vector for um, for this, um, for misinformation. We don't really know whether, let's say, the amount of misinformation even that people are being exposed to is more than, say, a decade ago. I think concerns have increased, and I think it's good that we are uh, highly concerned uh, about these things. But... For example, in my own research, um, unpublished, uh, but um, and this is from my from my lab. We're looking at exposure to various kinds of of, of fake news, which we define in a very particular kind of way. Um, but we 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 figured around five percent of the content being shared during the election was under our definition of fake news. Uh, so, not trivial, but it was actually very concentrated in a small corner of Twitter. Um, so, maybe 8, 1% of the of Twitter accounts accounted for 80% of all exposure. Um, and, and, and there's also the questions of, you know, interesting questions around manipulation and the role that platforms play in allowing some people to dominate uh, the platform. So, for example, in our research we found 0.1 uh, percent of the accounts, like one out of a thousand accounts, provided around 80 percent of uh, the fake news. Um, so, um, so, but you know, these are really small down payments on what is actually a lot of. Uh, it's a, a difficult topic to study because just, just the things that you would be trying to look at are themselves fake. And so, when we look at, let's say, Buzzfeed stories on how much given fake news stories have been shared, like the Pope endorses Trump, those numbers themselves are manipulated by bots and cyborgs and so on. So it's really, really hard to get a handle on something where even the thing you're trying to get a handle on is sort of fake. Um, I could go on, but that just sort of gives you a sense of some of the complexities.
1: Great. Um and Claire, I'm wondering if you can talk about how this is happening on a global scale. But also, um, since the term fake news, which you hate, just came up, if you wanna if you wanna give a little Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> if you wanna if you wanna start by maybe just talking about sort of how you've talked about the importance of of defining these terms, like that might be helpful as we go forward in the
4: conversation. Yeah, I mean, why do you hate the term? Well, the reason I hate the term is exactly as you just described is if we're trying to do research about something, we have to be really clear about what our definitions are. Yeah. And so David's right, there's been some really good research around particular types of fabricated websites that are made to look like news sites and we measure whether people click through to them. But actually the whole ecosystem includes memes and visuals and manipulated videos and dark posts and a whole host of things that are part of this space. Exactly. And so the term itself isn't helpful because it doesn't actually capture the whole ecosystem. And secondly, and you know this, it has been weaponized and it's now become meaningless because it's a slur that's used globally, mostly by politicians, to describe information that they don't like. And so, you know, as somebody who spends a lot of time in the news industry, I get very angry at journalists who call me up and be like, can I talk about fake news? Like, no, this term has been used against you. (laughs) Increasingly, research shows if you ask people what's fake news, they'll say... I'll tell you what's fake news, Claire. The mainstream media, that's fake news. So actually, we, we are, as a news industry, are not helping ourselves by using that term because it's, it's meaningless. So that's why I don't like it. But um, you can tell from my accent that I am not from this fair land, uh, although I love it. Um, but, you know, I walk in and I see the flag. I'm like, yes, it is a problem here. But because of the election in 2016, we focus on this conversation as political disinformation and a Facebook problem and essentially a Trump problem the way people talk about it. Actually, if we think globally, this is a very significant issue that people have been talking about for a long time. And I'll just say this now. You've heard people in 2016 say, yeah, welcome to the party, America. We've been struggling with this for a really long time. And it's mostly about health and science information. And it's not really Facebook. It's closed messaging apps like WhatsApp and WeChat and Line and Viber and Telegram and all these, like mess essentially, SMS Services where a lot of this disinformation is being shared, but it's very difficult, actually impossible to capture and understand. And in places like Myanmar and Sri Lanka, and luckily we're now starting to talk more about the international context of what this means, Um, but that's what I lose sleep over. Yes, it's a problem here, but actually this is a global crisis of truth decay, uh, and it affects not just political disinformation, but the way people think about each other, religious, ethnic tensions, uh, and people's access to quality information about health or climate change. Um, So I look forward to the time when we really start broadening this conversation and think about it in a global way.
1: So, Jennifer, we talk about the platform's role in this a lot. Um, how responsible do you think they are for trying to solve this problem?
2: Well, I think the answer to that depends on who you ask. So if you ask them, they typically say that they're publishers and they're not accountable for the information that they've that that is uh, on their platforms, with the one exception of uh, Zuckerberg's comment during his uh, testimony where it's not 100% clear sort of the context in which he was thinking about that. Um, But I think that, in reality, they they do have to play a role in the solution. Um, There are many things that they could do to try to work towards this. One is simply increasing transparency, opening up their API, providing more transparency about where the money comes for their advertising so that people are more aware of the different sources of funding that are uh, supporting the the different types of information available on the platform. There are things they could do in the space of uh, monitoring and identifying bots um, it's incredibly difficult for them to develop an algorithm that's going to pull out all the bots. We were just talking before that um, e- even the best algorithm is going to pull out. Even say they pull out a million uh, bots per day, that's only a drop in the bucket of the number of bots that are actually active on the on the platform. Uh, but that you know that's still a step in the right direction. But uh, just simply identifying them so that people are aware this is a bot. Uh, is one possible option working towards automated fact checking that fact checks things automatically could be another option these are only things that are going to address tiny pieces of the problem but together they might help us move towards a solution but a bigger challenge here is the incentive structure that they face they don't really have an incentive to do any of these things without some type of government encouragement because it's completely counter to their business model and it's going to impose costs and it's going to limit their profits Uh, so i think while they they certainly have to play a role in the solution. It's not clear that we're going to get them to uh, take that role without some kind of external impetus, whether that's uh, regulation or the threat of regulation, uh, is remains to be seen.
1: David or Claire, do you want to add anything to that? Thoughts on what the platforms should be arguing?
3: I, I should note that um, I'll, I'll throw in two, my two cents, and I'm sure you uh, um, will as well. But I think that um, there's a lot of... Um, trickiness here. And of course, the different platforms, uh, there are different issues with different platforms. And so, um, so like platform, they're all sort of um, uh, open to manipulations of different kinds. And okay. so, um, and part of the question, you know, some of that comes from bots, some of that comes from, like in, in our research, we, we find the super shares of of uh, misinformation, as I, as I was mentioning, that 0.1% of the accounts account for 80%. They just tweet an awful lot, right? And um, and that has, um, and, and first of all, it's just taking advantage of a functionality of the platform, but it also potentially manipulates um, what's trending, for example, and so it gets potentially amplified. Um, I do think that, um, you know, the question of what, to why this is in their business interests it's an interesting. It, it's an interesting question because, to the extent that they're uh, manipulated to share content which people don't want to see, mm-hmm. um, actually, it's well aligned, right? That they don't want to be manipulated. And I do think that they are. They are working at not only the, the um, on the bot issue, but also to figure out how how do you build algorithms that are robust. Uh, to not being manipulated, and I think that was something that that certainly was neglected uh, for a long time, but I think that that, that's improved a lot. I think that, um, uh, or is improving, I should say, a a lot, maybe not yet, Uh, but it's definitely a trending, my sense at least, is that that's uh, trending uh, the right way. The potential, um, you know, when we talk about Google, I'd say the biggest source is when we think about, let's say, what provides traffic to news, it's probably we can think about the role of Google uh, because um, Google I think is still the biggest singles um, um, conduit uh, to news okay. um, and um, and you know, and the question—I mean—they do have a whole set of ways of. of it's interesting because they have a whole set of mechanisms for identifying quality searches, but they won't identify particular content or particular domains as being sources mm-hmm. of misinformation because they don't want to be seen as blackballing infowars, uh, for example. They don't
5: want to be arbiters of truth.
3: That's right. They. Oh boy, boy. That's how often do you see, hear that in Silicon Valley? Times. Um, but there's a certain. Thing there that you know people are choosing. Where's what's the role of individual agency, right? Um, and so there's an interesting challenge. If you want to follow someone on Twitter who tweets a lot of fake news, um, what's the role of the platform to prevent you? Uh, should would you say uh, Google should censor your email from your uncle who's sending you a crazy news story? Um, and you know, and I, I you know we have to think of that these. Fake news and misinformation is actually embedded in actual social relationships, and so there's a real tricky normative question about the role that platforms should play. And I'm not saying there isn't a role, but there's like there, there is a there is um, there is real uh, trickiness. Uh, in that, but they can't avoid the choice in some sense because they're already making choices about what you see and what you don't see. So, so in that sense, the ship has sailed in terms of making choices.
4: Yeah, I just think the last thing I'd say is when we specifically think about Facebook, nobody broke the rules on Facebook. People used Facebook as it was designed to be used. So when three days after the election, Mark Zuckerberg said, it's crazy that we had any influence here. I mean, those guys, mostly guys, in Silicon Valley are great, but there's a lot of arrogance there that they really believe that technology will make the world a better place. They just did not see this coming at all. And I used to work at UNHCR in Geneva, and I headed up social media, and my job was to find people using the Facebook platform who were more likely to care about refugees. And I used all the same techniques as the Russians. Because that's how Facebook is set up. So the difficulty when we now turn to Facebook and say you're not doing enough is they made a platform that could be manipulated. They just did not see it coming. Yeah. And now we're trying to be like, put the fences up. It's like, But we made a thing yeah. that could, is really easy to manipulate. And to your point, yeah. to put those fences up is going to go... Against you know the First Amendment plus plus plus, and it's know? a change.
3: It's a change of mindset, which is you know the the one troubling quote from Zuckerberg was uh, he said, "All right, I'm working on the problem. Don't worry, I'm sitting down with a bunch of brilliant you know my best engineers." I'm like, it's not primarily an engineering
5: problem.
2: <laughs> yeah. well, one of the challenges with thinking about solutions, at least for Facebook, is that we don't have good data on what's actually happening on the platform. So most of our work on how disinformation proliferates through social media is done through, with Twitter because Twitter makes its yeah. data public and Facebook doesn't. Now that's changing. They are potentially going to make some data available through a partnership with some foundations. But to this point, we don't have good benchmarks to know how the disinformation problem works on Facebook. How does it spread? How deep does it spread? Is it the same phenomenon on Twitter where you have a a small number of sharers who are doing a lot of the sharing, or is it more widely diffused? So I think that one of the challenges with thinking about, Dave is 100% right, that the the solutions are going to be platform specific, but we don't even have the data on a lot of these platforms to make those decisions.
5: Absolutely.
1: yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about what what we don't know as much about. Um, we had Claire, you brought up closed messaging apps and things like that. Um, I want to just ask all of you guys a little bit. Um, what do you think? What do you think is the biggest part of the problem that's not getting enough media attention? Like, what is something that you want to know more about? And I would love to hear about the messaging apps to start. Yeah, so
4: we're actually doing an election project in Brazil. We're doing an election project here in the U.S. and also in Brazil. And that's partly because when you see what's happening in Brazil, which is actually more polarized than the U.S., shockingly, uh, and his huge levels of WhatsApp usage. Um, and what he, those of you in the room who might use SMS, it might be I might text you and say, let's meet down the pub at 7. And so people are, well, how do WhatsApp How does it work? But in Brazil, they will have these big WhatsApp groups where people actually get a lot of information. People share links. They share memes and visuals. And so the scale, we have no idea. So we're hoping to do research in Brazil and India and Pakistan and Myanmar to try and just sit down with people, both with surveys and um, yeah. in-depth interviews, just to say, show us your phone. <laughs> like, help us understand how this is actually working. But to your point about Crazy Uncle Bob and the email, I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, we forget to our peril how this interacts with email yeah. or conversations around dinner tables we're only studying what we can study. We're not studying yeah. actually how this interacts and peer-to-peer conversations. And to your point about Truth Decay, as we are losing respect or trust in those institutions and we're turning to one another, we're turning to one another around the dinner table, but also in these closed messaging apps or email. And so to your point, Laura, I don't even know where we start. And But the problem is these are, not the problem, but they're encrypted services. Yeah. So in the same way as... You know, terrorist experts get very concerned that we can't access Telegram after a terrorist incident in the same way as when we're talking about disinformation in Brazil. How do we, as a you know project lead, how do I get access to that stuff beyond saying, please send us the things that you're seeing? Um, so it's a, you know, but if we forget that, then we're missing a huge part of the ecosystem.
3: Uh, you know, I, I think... Um you know, I think it, it, all this requires a lot of thinking about developing research uh, methods and tools for studying these things, and so, and some something, some of the platforms are much more um, transparent. Twitter, Google, in its own way, is actually pretty transparent because you can. We've been auditing, we've been working on an audit of Google, like just seeing, uh, putting out lots of news terms and seeing what it returns and like archiving everything oh and getting their top 100 uh, returns. And like that changes over time, but like we don't have, we can't reproduce what that was five years ago. And so there's an interesting question of how do we create baselines and time series data. So I do think that, um, to you know, the, that we need the, to think very carefully around how we develop tools around studying misinformation. information um, we have, um, you know, one of the exercises I've, I've had, I set a, a poor doctoral student of mine to do is to gather all papers ever written from Facebook data. Uh, not on Facebook, but from Facebook data of various kinds. Uh, but one of the troubling things, I think you saw this figure I, I put up, but was um, was there are a couple of troubling elements to this. One um, that um, um, there's almost no research on misinformation, right? I think there have been, we looked at 2011, 2016, I think there were like two or three papers from Facebook data that was looking at uh, misinformation. Um, And then um, there's very little research on how Facebook works, like understanding, like there's a great paper from the Facebook data science team looking at the role the algorithms play, right? Because this is a key element, but still highly not understood, right? What role, everything you see is algorithmically mediated, Right um, um, on these platforms, and so do those algorithm. What role do those algorithms play? And so this, there was a great paper a few years ago by Bakshi and um, Messing and Adamic from the data science team at, at Facebook um, that showed some degree of liberals getting liberal content, conservatives conservative content. Not a huge effect, but not trivial either. Right. Um, but what is that now, like if we were to replicate that study? And, number, and, and so as I, and I've told, uh, as the, and this goes back to the data transparency people issue, as I've talked to the Facebook uh, policy types and saying, you know, the only news about the platform that you can produce that people will believe is bad news. Because anything that's good news is going to be viewed as manufactured. Because they had, like, in this information operations report, um, 0.1% of content came from these, you know, from disinformation efforts, right, of civic-related content. It was just like in a footnote, right? The entire methodology was in half a sentence. I'm like, I do this stuff, you, you're just not allowed to do that. Right? Uh, and and I'm, I'm, you know, and I just mock them every opportunity I get for that assertion because they should, be, they, should, they should be embarrassed. They should be, they can't say that, right? And if they want credible statements, then they need to have parties that don't have a dog in that fight and they surely have a dog in that fight. And so uh, to me, just all the issues around prevalence and algorithmic the role of algorithmic curation is just huge unknowns. We you know, just, just, just the tiniest of bit about those things.
5: So I think
2: for me, the area that I think needs more attention is the role that human agency plays. So it came up today, but you rarely hear it come up in conversation. Yeah. There's a lot of focus on what should the government do and how should we regulate tech in, uh, industry, the tech industry or the media. Uh, But I think that humans play a big role in this and they have to play a role in the solution. We can implement all the regulations that we want, but if people don't care, if people aren't willing to look for facts and to take the time to identify what's a fact and to think about those facts, then I don't think it makes a difference. And so I think that there are insights that we can draw from other uh, disciplines to think about this problem so behavioral economics is one example are there ways that we can structure situations what can we learn from how people make decisions and the context in which they do rely on facts or they're more likely to rely on facts those are things insights that we can take from other areas and apply them here to think about uh, what can we do to help people uh, uh, seek out facts um, and part of that gets to education and part of it just gets to understanding how decisions are made and structuring situations or providing people tools that can help them uh, get to that point. Um, But there has to be a willingness, there has to be an understanding of why facts matter and why it's important to be an informed participant in democracy if if democracy is what you want. Um, And so that's something that I think needs to be a bigger part of this conversation. Um, Behavioral economics is just one example of of some of the insights that we could draw from other other disciplines and other fields to bring to this, uh, this issue.
1: Okay, so I'm gonna ask uh, the group one more question, and then we'll open it up to audience questions. So get those ready. Um, so, getting um, just gonna talk about government for a second, even though you just said not to do that. But what
2: well, do you- but they have to, There's lots of stakeholders, and everybody has to play a role, or we're not gonna get anywhere. So.
1: What do you guys think the role of the government is here at the United States government? Um, what are some possible paths uh, that we could take to regulate this? What are the European countries doing? They may be a little farther ahead than the United States government in some of this. What do you guys think?
4: So I was recently on an EU commission high-level expert panel on fake news, and you can imagine how much I love that title. Um, and it was 39 uh, stakeholders around the table, and it did include the, all the platforms and news media and civil society and academics. And it was a fascinating, over kind of, six weeks process of many meetings in Brussels. Um, and it, as a European who's lived here for a while, it was fascinating to return to a place where they really do think the government can regulate everything and can fund news organisations. I mean, it's, it's so different to here. It's amazing. Uh, not amazingly good, but just amazingly different. Um, I think my concern about the conversation about regulation is we're just throwing it around with the capital R. Do we mean self-regulation? Do we mean co-regulation? Do we mean full-scale regulation? because we know so little... What I would like is some form of auditing process, which an independent body can say to these platforms, we don't understand enough about this. But the challenge, you know, in the EU context, they've done a lot to regulate illegal speech. So if it's hate speech, if it's terrorist content, defamatory content, they know what to do with that. This is legal speech. And I would to say, even after all of our conversations, we'll be like, Whoa. it's really hard to know what you can do in terms of legal speech. But also around the table, when we said, let's stack up all the research we have about the scale of the problem and its impact, we're like, uh, and we just don't have anything about this. So we shouldn't be going anywhere near regulation with a capital R until we understand it. So I would like to talk about how can we use some of that pressure simply to get access so that we understand this to a greater degree.
3: Yeah, I would... I would um... I would just accent the role that government can play. Not just government, actually, but civil society act, uh, actors as well in increasing transparency of what's happening. Because actually, I think that the, even without the cooperation of the platforms, there's a lot of ways that, um, that we can look into what these platforms are doing. Even WhatsApp, if you get, you know, if you get people to show you their phones uh, to see what's on it, it's not easy. Uh, but I, do, I think it takes resources and so I'd be, I'm hesitant, um, To it, it is, it's, it's just it's a hard problem. Um, I, I actually think that there's definitely some things platforms should be doing, like not being fooled, uh, for example, but you know, the, the role, I get really nervous. Um, about government intervention, maybe you know, it just makes you know, I the notion that we might have a ministry of truth um, uh, identifying uh, what's true or not is is a little distressing. And of course, when we think about this in a global context, right? I mean, you know, of course, you know, at the moment, I think we're we're having major. Governmental truth issues uh, here, but you know actually we do a lot better uh, than than a lot of countries in terms of trying to weight the dice uh, and they really would have a ministry of truth um, and um, and so um, uh, you know i I'm not you know I'm not hundred percent sure uh, i think I'm glad. I like to see their their cages rattled a bit. That's different from actual intervention. I think that it would be worthy of major investments to study and make transparent what's happening, more transparent what's happening in the platforms, um, which in itself creates certain kinds of self-regulatory pressures, because if, if you show that Facebook is a major vector for misinformation, it actually does create some kinds of incentives, um, as we've seen, right? I mean, like they lost $100 billion of market cap uh, after the Cambridge Analytica um, revelations. That's, that's an incentive. Um, so I actually think that transparency does create its own kinds of, trans, uh, of, of incentives. And that's definitely something you know, you could see government agencies investing in, or maybe better still, would be foundations such as the ones that are um, investing in the in the Facebook uh, and broader misinformation efforts. So,
2: I think what it's important when we think about go- government action to recognize that it's not that the options on the table are not just. A ministry of truth or government uh, monitoring content. There's a whole range of other uh, possibilities. So we already have mechanisms in place for uh, regulating media uh, media in terms of liability uh, for uh, printing false content, content in terms of defamation, and other types of things like that, and libel. Um, we also have a model that that's used to regulate public utilities. Um, and these are all models of regulation that we, could, that we could apply to social media. So it's important to think about what is social media actually? What are these platforms? Are they utilities? Are they like railroads? Are they like media companies? What are they? And then thinking about which model of uh, government uh, participation, let's say, to not use the word regulation, what model fits? And even when we think about uh, you know, regulation, it could be it doesn't have to be punishment. It could be incentives. If you do a better job removing false information, you get this extra um, funding to fund investigative journalism or other types of um, activities. So I think that uh, there is a role for the government to play, and that doesn't have to be a regulatory role that uh, begins to infringe on the First Amendment or that becomes a Ministry of Truth. Um, and I think that thinking through what those options are and what are the pros and cons of each, um, which is feasible? Which is legal? What are these going to cost? I think that's a really important step that we can take, just in terms of mapping out the space of possible options for responses. And we can do the same thing for tech um, tech platforms. And we can do the same thing for uh, third parties, like foundations and other types of organizations. Think about what are the range of options, what are the pros and what are the cons. And so I think that as we move forward in this space, that's an important next step to take, is really um, thinking through what are all the different possibilities.
3: Oh, a funny story. Uh, Facebook, when they were in their early years, used to have a tagline, Facebook, a social utility. That has been totally scrubbed from the website.
6: (laughs) I I really liked your comment about uh, the importance of individual responsibility and individual agency, but I just looked up the percentage of people that still smoke. 15% of Americans, like 34 million people, still smoke cigarettes, despite the fact that they know it'll kill them and not only will they die, it's a horrible gagging death. Regulation played an important role in diminishing the number of people that engaged in a thing that will hurt society, cost us all, and kill them. I I really like the idea that um you know this is an issue of free speech and that they're publishers. But publishers that publish the protocols of the elders of Zion are met with crushing opprobrium and people that yell fire in a crowded theater are uh, punished. It's also true that the the one of the things that was wrong with the Citizens United ruling was they equated being a corporation with being a person and money with speech. The thing that makes free speech work is that everybody has the same amount of it? Everybody has the same ability as your crazy Uncle Ralph to call you up and tell you about the lizard people that rule the world. And if you have to do it one person at a time, it really curbs the ability of Crazy Uncle Ralph to get people, you know, on board with lizard people. Regulation of uh, money in politics had a once upon a time had a very positive role regulation can make a big difference. Are there any proposals from the RAND Corporation about good ideas for regulation?
2: So we're, we're working on that right now. We have a project that's going on where we're doing exactly what I just described in terms of laying out what are the different possible models for government regulation that might work. And we're thinking through the pros and the cons and the feasibility for each. Um, and we're hoping to have that same kind of matrix laid out for other stakeholders in this space as well. Um, And so while I don't think I can speak today to which of these possible solutions would be the best, this is something that we're working towards, hopefully hopefully having available to uh, be a part of this ongoing debate in the next couple of months.
4: I think, so very quickly to that point, I mean, the First Amendment, people say, because there needs to be a marketplace of ideas. And I would argue now, we don't have an open marketplace of ideas because of algorithms. You are put into these buckets, and I don't get access to, I don't see a lot of lizard people. (laughs) But I think we have to think differently about the First Amendment. For me, coming to this country, it stops conversations with people at First Amendment. And I think we have to say, what does the First Amendment mean in 2018 in an age of algorithms? And if you haven't read the book Algorithms of Oppression that's just come out, it's this phenomenal book from an academic from uh, USC Annenberg who basically had two of... She's um, a black academic. She had two of her nieces coming around, and she Googled black kids because she was looking to do to see what to do with them. And it was all porn. And she was like... Uh, what's this? And so the whole book is actually how algorithms shape our reality. One of the best examples is she put into Google, uh, student who taught herself calculus. And Google said, do you mean the student who taught himself calculus? And it used to be if the, you, in Google images, if you looked for, if you Googled CEO, it was all men. The only woman was CEO Barbie. And that's not because people in Silicon Valley hate you know, people of color or hate women. It's because they have written algorithms from their own perspective and they haven't thought through why this is a problem. So to your point here, I want us to have a proper conversation about what the First Amendment means in an age of algorithms. And from a regulatory perspective, when you say to platforms, we want more transparency around your algorithm, they're like, well, that's our secret source. We couldn't possibly. But how can we have, think about regulation around what the content is? Of those results are? How can we start auditing those results to understand what the impact of those algorithms? are in in terms of our society. So it's such an important topic. And my fear is, quickly to go back to the testimony, every second answer from Mark Zuckerberg was, it's all right, artificial intelligence is going to solve that. It's okay, artificial intelligence is going to solve that. Unless as a society, we have a conversation about how we're building those algorithms that will, you know, what's the training data we're using to make those algorithms smart? We're going to look back in a panel in 10 years' time and be like, we missed that. They've all been built we're screwed and my frustration is we're not having a conversation at that level about how these algorithms are shaping what we see because that directly impacts how we think about free speech
2: there's actually a recent ran report on the idea that uh what we think of algorithms as unbiased and they're actually very biased they're biased by the people who code them and they're biased by the data that they're trained on yeah um so if you're interested that there's a report that was just came out last year on that topic exactly
3: the only thing I would say um, and I agree with everything that's been said but we we still don't know the scale of the problem right so this is and I have I've spent a chunk of my tier, career doing regulation teaching regulation studying regulation and then I shifted into you know I've done networks and then big data and it all seems to fit together weirdly now um, and boy this is so much harder than smoking <laughs> You know, I mean, smoking is clearly, you know, bad. It, it has, it, at the individual level, it creates externalities and, and we can quantify these things pretty well in terms of the costs uh, to society. Um, it's really hard, given that most people are actually misinformed about most things, and we're 20 years ago and we're 50 years ago, it's not clear that we're more misinformed now than we were a generation ago. And it's not clear that any government interventions along these lines will actually, um, imp- how much that will improve the deglo- degree of informedness. You know, we can think of particular contexts like there's this uh, great, a horrible article in the New York Times uh, a couple weeks ago on Sri Lanka and the, the misinformation spreading um, to um, around um, you know uh, around uh, uh, Tamil Muslims. I think in Buddhists then burned down and killed the people and so on because they because these rumors were spreading and of course of course all that existed before. I mean my 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 grandparents fled. Um, um, you know, fled the Cossacks uh, um, because you know of, of pogroms and blood libel and the Elders of Zion. But of course, Elders of Zion goes back to the 19th century. Um, so, um, so I I agree that there's clear potential for societal harm. We don't know how much there is. We don't know what what the costs uh, will be. We don't even know how to quantify benefits and costs. Um, and um, and we know that these these problems are longstanding. All of that's not to say we shouldn't do stuff, but it's just to say, boy, we start from a, a, such a place of ignorance uh, right now.
2: So I I, um, I appreciate the comments on um, regulation, but I also think that it's important to have multiple strategies. And you mentioned education. About twenty years ago, I was really involved in media literacy in teaching. Uh, especially middle school kids, how to discern the media and and separate fact from fiction and, and, and to understand who's profiting here. And that was something that was very strong at the time. I've since moved into other areas, but it seems like we need media literacy, not only for children, but for adults more than ever. And so I wonder if you might comment on that. So I think it's a very important area and it's definitely an area where we can find solutions. It's not going to be a panacea, it's not going to solve the problem on its own, but it's definitely something that we should pursue. If you look at the data on how students spend their time during the day, we see a decline in exactly the subjects that we'd like them to be getting more time in in order to be good media consumers. Things like civics education, social studies, uh, some types of science education, uh, activities that promote critical thinking. Um, so statistics training, so these are all things that we need in order to be educated consumers of news information. Um, and it does media literacy doesn't have to mean add a separate course on media literacy. It can be incorporated into other types of subjects, but it needs to be taught in a context that's applicable. So reading comprehension gets you towards media literacy, but teaching it in the context of what does this mean when you're when you're actually reading news articles and how do you think about bias and how do you think about, Um, taking two very different accounts of the same event and figuring out what the truth is or what the actual facts are in the middle. And so I think that thinking through these different types of questions and designing a curriculum that gets at those things, whether that's a one-course curriculum or kind of a holistic curriculum, is very important. There are a lot of ongoing activities in this area, new programs popping up to address exactly that question. But one thing that we don't have have good data on is whether or not these programs are actually improving student outcomes in this area. Um, and most of the metrics, if, if you ask them, is your program working, they'll say, well, I'm in 500 schools or I'm in this many states. And that's that's kind of an output metric, but it doesn't tell you, is it working? And so that's another area that we're actually exploring right now is trying to build an evaluative framework that will allow us to um, assess different programs and figure out whether or not they're, uh, quote unquote, good programs in terms of what they include, as well as um, do they actually improve the types of outcomes um, on the metrics that we'd like to measure students in terms of their ability to be good consumers?
4: Just very quickly, I'd say about media literacy is that um, many of the programs are based on this idea that we have rational relationships with information. And actually, our relationships are mostly emotional. So I always talk about how to, can we teach emotional skepticism? So if you see an image, which is of a shark swimming down a highway after a tornado, not a, you a know, hurricane, you should think, yeah, it's a great photo. It's going to make your friends laugh. But You know, actually, can we go through those steps? And so, and I could not agree with you more is, you know, and I love my friends in foundations, but they are throwing money at media literacy programs and ticking a box, being like, yes, we've solved it. And nobody is looking at this issue. And there are, there's starting to be some evidence of kind of a, a backfire effect here, which is the more we teach students to be critical of information, they struggle to determine online what to trust and what not. So, in many ways, by teaching them, well, you can't trust Wikipedia. When you, know, when you talk to students, they're like, well, I don't even know who to trust. You know, and so that's how do we say, you know, there are some sources you can trust, less so. You know, and so in many ways, we haven't thought through and evaluated appropriately. So we've been throwing out these programs yeah. without saying, we've actually been causing more harm. So as ever, more research It's a boring answer. But it's the truth. so true.
3: No, I think the key thing is, and I want to emphasize, can you train people to become more discriminating, so they, they trust some things more and other things less? And we, we just uh, we just don't have uh, again we don't have the hard data on whether what whether any of that money is is garnering any benefits. Uh, um, the other thing I'll note from our own research is that and, and this accents the last point of what you were asking, which is uh, media literacy is not just it's it's not just a um, you know primary and secondary school thing, but because because the vast majority of the exposure and fake news that people were choosing. Right, because they were choosing who to follow, was coming from older Americans. Even though Twitter skews young, the age the the age range for people who are being exposed to fake news was way older um, than and than um, than the typical age range for Twitter. Um, and um, you know that may be in part ideologically driven because I think there, there's a the other issue we haven't touched on is that in the U.S. there's a real um, partisan and, and ideological imbalance currently of, of misinformation um, as a political strategy. Um, and uh, and there's clearly a lot more of it on the right currently. Maybe the left is catching up now, but that may in part be why we're finding what we're finding. Although actually we, we did a multivariate analysis and it's, it's you know, if you're older, old male, white, <laughs> Republican. Old white men. And so, uh, yeah, so...
5: That was a perf- perfect segue to the question I had, which is um, as a as a as a cause of truth decay, where does traditional media fit in, like Fox News? Um, and then, kind of a, a second part of that is I I heard on NPR this week, so it must be true <laughs> that thirty five million Americans read below the fourth grade level, and. They were saying one in six, but we were kind of calculating maybe one in ten. But whatever it is, some large number of Americans that are illiterate. And if you're looking at Brazil, probably the number is even higher. So when we're focused on um, social media, that presumes some level of reading. And I was wondering about folks who may not read so well, who have to rely on Fox News or the equivalent um, on TV um, and, and sort of how to – what's your sense of how that fits into truth decay as a as a causal factor relative to social media? Yeah,
4: I, was, I mean, one of the reasons I hate that term, some people still use, <laughs> uh, is because when we talk about news, people think about text and information, and so it's actually stopped us from talking about visuals. Our brains, um, you know, take... When we have to be critical of visuals, we are a lot a lot less likely to kind of get our synapses going. We're much more likely to accept a visual as truth. And so, and in a mobile environment, you don't have to click onto an image. You're just scrolling through and you see it right there. So actually a lot of this stuff, and the reason that disinformation agents use visuals so much is because A, it's much more effective. B, you don't have to click through. Um, data use in places like Myanmar, you're not clicking through. So visuals are actually the most powerful forms of disinformation. We just don't focus on them as much because they're harder. And even the platforms, natural language processing is a pretty established uh, way of making sense of text. So all of the artificial intelligence is based on text, When you go to Facebook and say, what are you doing in terms of monitoring and making sense of visuals, they are a very, very, very long way away from being able to work on that. So in an era where we start working about deep fakes... And you've probably seen these kind of videos of Obama saying something that he didn't say. That's the next frontier. And we haven't even caught up on this frontier. But your point about TV, I'll open it, uh, you know, pass on to my colleagues. But that we're not talking about it. We've just talked for what an hour, not mentioned TV for a second. And that really is a massive part of this ecosystem. Um, and it's a, you know, and if we don't study it and we're having these, how do we map onto what's the, the, um, journey? So very quickly in our lab over the summer in that we're working up to the midterms, If you look at places like 8chan and 4chan and Discord, which are these pretty cesspool-like spaces on the internet, you have mostly young boys in basements plotting disinformation campaigns, and they know that from that it will travel to Reddit, it will then travel to Facebook and then Twitter, and then a journalist who is under-resourced and needs a story to deadline, will pick that up and amplify it and it will end up on Fox News or even a CNN. And that journey is a really, really crucial journey. And if we ever study or look at one part of that journey, we're missing the full element. So you could not be more correct in this. And the struggle is these conversations are fully about online and we don't see the interaction between online and TV.
3: I couldn't do better
2: than that. <laughs> so I'll just add a couple of thoughts about more conventional sources of media and the way they contribute to this problem. So one uh, way to think about it is the changes, the economics of the media market and the extent to which we've seen a really a real increase in the diversity and number of sources of information in terms of uh, television stations as well as pr- uh, print outlets um, and digital journalism, which is a little bit different than um, than, than than platforms. Uh, things like just online uh, uh, newsletters or, uh, uh, news sites. Um, and, as you see this increasing diversity, this shrinks profit margins. And uh, news outlets have to resort to other types of mechanisms to reduce the cost of producing news in order to continue to make a profit. And one thing that that drives is a shift away from fact based news to commentary based news. Doing hard hitting investigative journalism is expensive. Um, hiring a couple experts to sit on your television show or to write their opinion um, in, an, in, a, in, a, in a column, those things are much cheaper. Um, but those things are often based on opinion and not on fact. And sometimes they're pr- The problem is that they're then presented as fact or people don't have enough information to distinguish between what is the fact here and what is the opinion here. And so that mixing of information is a huge piece of this problem. And you see that blurring of the line between facts and opinion on social media as well, but it really uh, is just as da- dangerous when it occurs in print journalism as well as in uh, as as well as on television, because not everyone uses social media. There are still people who only use uh, television or who primarily use print journalism. Um, and so, I think that even though it may take a slightly different form in these different channels, people are still getting it. It's just a matter of where they're getting it from. So, it's a lot of the same challenges, just in a kind of different
7: package. Mark told us this is the 70th anniversary of Rand. I think it's also the 70th anniversary of the publication of 1984. These issues go back at least that far, the Ministry of Truth and all. But I was curious, um, it's like National Enquirer has been around for a very long time and when I've looked at it, clearly a lot of it is stuff that I assume the reader's know is pure fantasy, but I guess not all of it is that. And my impression is in the early 19th century and maybe 18th century, or early 20th and 19th century U.S., there were millions of newspapers out there, many, many in each city, which I think segmented their readership, much like the algorithms are segmenting now. So, Clearly, um, information comes at a much faster pace and spreads much faster now than it did then. But as consumers, the amount of attention we have probably hasn't grown all that much over the centuries. So I'd be interested in your thoughts about sort of the historical perspective, how this is different, why is it different,
3: Well, you know, I think if you look at the media in 19th century U.S., it was unrecognizable relative to where we're coming from, right? I mean, most of the newspapers were funded by political parties, and there wasn't that notion of objectivity that seems to, that is sort of at the core of um, journalism now. Um, Society was also, arguably, even more polarized than hell, we had a civil war. That's about as polarized as you get. Um, so, um, and and indeed, interestingly, newspapers because. Um, um, because copy because we didn't have intellectual property protection then, they just copied each other. So social so it was slow mo. I have a colleague of mine who's who does, who's a, in the digital humanities. But he, if you look up viral text project, he studies the, the flow of text um, through the, in amongst newspapers uh, in uh, the 19th century. So you had this copying process of news and sometimes misinformation spreading through. Uh, new, among newspapers because they could just copy each other and they copied from other partisan organs and so on. And so, and the, the objective of the newspapers was, was, you know, very much instrumental of helping reporting and constructing the truth in a way that was, that had um, um, a, uh, uh, you know, benefited had a certain partisan tilt, a serious partisan tilt. And that, that all started to change in the early 20th century for multiple reasons. Um, and so, um, and so in that sense, um, you know, I guess if we want to look on the upside, maybe it's been worse. Um, so, um, but, um, <laughs> but uh, you know that you know we we've, we've been had a very particular kind of ecosystem that we can also idealize, right? I mean, um, you know, newspapers. Um, reflected their societies. There's a story on the role of southern newspapers in encouraging lynchings. Um, We can look at the editorial coverage of newspapers in terms of what they covered and did not cover um, and that uh, the much more diverse um, ecosystem perhaps that we have now um, may actually be illuminating more truths than than, you know, Walt Cronkite, Uncle Walt Cronkite did. And so um, so we have to, you know, we have to be careful about idealizing uh, the past uh, because there were a whole bunch of problems in terms of what... The things we did not see, the things that were excluded, the the tilts and the biases um, that uh, look very much like what you were just talking about—the algorithmic biases. Well, just yeah. just open up a newspaper from the '60s or '70s, uh, and all of those kinds of biases would have been very clear. Um, so, um, so um, you know, so all of that's to say is that it takes different forms there are different reasons and i think there are some ways that we're if i were to point to one thing that's different now it would be that we're a bit more, um, perme- we're more or a lot more permeable arguably um and so i think that um foreign intervention in our news ecosystem is a lot easier now uh just as one example wasn't impossible then there's a wonderful story on how the brits um um had this whole campaign in the early nineteen forties. I mean it was it was for good cause, it was anti, you know, against the Nazis and so on. So I, you know, I in retrospect it looks pretty good, but it was meant to got a lot of
5: bad stuff too. <laughs> That's right.
3: Well and and so the and of course you can look at the US trying to manipulate news media in various places in the world or over history. Uh so um so um this is all being recorded but you know this is true. <laughs> so we so. so we did some historical
2: analysis in our report and we looked at we didn't go back quite as far as the Civil War we started with the Civil War and we identified several periods that look similar to today uh, in a number of ways and one of the ways in which they were most similar was the presence of a blurring of the line between facts and opinion and opinions proliferating as facts sort of um, a phenomena uh, like the disinformation campaigns that we've seen today. And so if you think about yellow journalism in the 1880s, um, 1890s, or the role that radio played in the 1930s, um, so those things are all very similar. The one difference that we see between uh, the current period and the past is this increasing disagreement about objective facts. So there's always been skeptics. There have always been people who have uh, pushed back against the, the traditional um the traditional belief structure, but what we see now are areas where there's an increasing amount of evidence um, in in support of a given interpretation or a given fact, and yet an increasing number of people uh, disagree with that fact. So there's a divergence between the body of evidence and the direction of public opinion on some key issues, and that does seem to be distinct now. Um, but I would agree with. Uh, David's point about the reason why that might be distinct, and that is the, 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 just the volume of information, the speed with which we get it, um, and the fact that there is such a diversity that you can almost always find something that agrees with you and that confirms what you want to believe.
4: I just end by saying the reason that it, this has been the same through the centuries is because we're human beings. <laughs> and there's great research about how apes connect with each other by yeah. pulling naps off each other. We can't do that in public, so we gossip so, gossip is a form of how you connect. So, if somebody tells me that somebody's having an affair, do I fact check it? No, I do not. I'm like- <laughs> So we have to remember that all of this is in the context of us as emotional human beings who have emotional, you know, relationships with um, information. So yeah, remember we're still all apes at
3: heart. Well, and and the beliefs tell say who what what tribe are uh, yeah, part of. 100%. So you know, in terms of uh, and that may that element um, uh, in terms of asserting that I believe this because this is this is my tribe, and that has become more relevant also because our social networks have become more polarized. As you're much more likely to live next to a neighbor and to be married to someone with the same political beliefs than you were, say, thir- much more likely than, say, 30 years ago. And so we get that reinforced in multiple kinds of ways. So it's a, it's a statement of social identity as well.
0: This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, Visit us online at www.rand.org slash events.